This is not the media. This is hell. Today, policing is violence. It's the nature of the beast. But that violence is exacerbated, encouraged, even celebrated by police unions across the country. They use intimidation in an attempt to silence those who would testify against police union members. When cops are found to have participated in the most egregious types of abuse, the unions defend them to the very end and beyond. Even after bad cops are found to be guilty of abuse, even torturing civilians, the union throws parties raising money for the abusive cops they now honor. No, unions are not the reason for all of the problems with police and policing. If you get rid of police unions, there still will be police violence. But there wouldn't be an institution doing everything it can to support police violence. We'll talk police, policing, and police unions when we have the return of attorney Flint Taylor, who wrote the Truth Out article, Police Unions Are Racist Power Brokers in Opposition to the Movement for Black Lives. Flint is a founding member of the People's Law Office here in Chicago and has represented numerous police torture survivors during the past 33 years. You can find out more about the People's Law Office at their website, peopleslawoffice.com. Flint was one of the lawyers involved in the struggle for reparations and has chronicled the decades-long fight against Chicago police torture in his book, the Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago, which we spoke with Flint the last time, which we spoke with him about uh, the last time he was on our show back in March of 2019. You can find that interview and a total of 10 of our conversations with Flint at thisishell.com. And of course, we'll wrap up the week we do this week the way we do most weeks with Moment of Truth from contributor Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff wants us to plan for what happens after the future. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for this weekend? Uh, yeah, but first, hate to do your job for you, Chuck, mm-hmm. but uh, what if everyone got in the police union? <laughs> Ask Flint, what happens if just we just put everyone in the police union? <laughs> Seems to be doing more for their people than uh, any it, other union I've been part of. It seems like a great union. Yeah, it's the only union movement that's having any success whatsoever. Hey, before I continue, uh, so I just went into uh, the office just to check my email real quick and uh, looked at Facebook, and a friend of mine passed away. I just found out, and uh, just kind of weird. But he had two, there's two great stories I want to tell you about him real quick. One, his dad made a fortune. Uh, as one of the creators of Fruit Roll-Ups. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> and we went to his house. He was renting a house in Grand Rapids. And uh, he said, hey, uh, you know, we are telling him how hungry we were. We were stoned. We were baked. We were like, hey, man, we're super hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And he goes, open up the cupboards. All that was in any of the cupboards were cases of Fruit Roll-Ups. That's all he had. And isn't every one of his kitchen cupboards above the countertops below the countertops were just filled with cases and cases of fruit roll-ups the other story about him that's really great is he worked for uh, Greenpeace and he went out on tours with Greenpeace you know like music tours with Greenpeace and he would set up a booth and hand out information and this one tour he did was with uh, Tom Petty and he saw Tom Petty every day and Tom Petty one time just walked over to him and said hey I really like the work that you guys do you guys are fantastic if you're ever in Florida Look me up. I'll get you high. So they're in Florida a couple months later. They look up Tom Petty. They call the number that he gives them. He's like, yeah, this is me. Come on over to my house. They go over to his house. He said it's this huge palatial place that's ridiculous with 
big marble columns in the lobby and a gigantic fountain spraying water. And uh, he was like, hey, just take a seat here. I'll be right back. And he comes back with this huge box and gets him high for like three hours. So I was, I was really hoping inside that box was going to be free roll. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. So, uh, yeah. Rest in peace, Jim. Uh, Alex, this weekend I'm doing something I probably should not do, but it seems in vogue right now. All the kids are doing it. I think this weekend I'm going to write. I'm going to write, Alex, I'm going to write a, a letter. That kind of letter that makes Harper's relevant again. Oh, no. <laughs> that is with anyone other than This Is Hell, as I swear we feature more Harper's writers and editors than any other radio show, live stream, podcast, or wherever the hell this is right now. So, yeah, I'm writing the kind of letter that might get me in trouble. Uh, I'm hoping it will be incredibly polarizing, uh, that you have to be for it or against it, that it will insist that you have a yes or no response. So, Alex, are you looking forward to Monday's monologue? Uh, sounds like you should be doing this on Twitter, where everyone else is doing the exact same thing constantly every hour. Uh, I just also wanted to point out, um, you really do have to confront your internalized misogyny when you're 10 minutes late for the show, and the only mask you can find in the house is leopard print. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't get sick today. This week's question from Al is, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on the phone? What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question gets a This Is Hell medical face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on the phone? You can... Leave your response to uh, at our Facebook post for the question from hell. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you must have it by the end of the show today when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, how have listeners answered the question from hell since yesterday's show? What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? Gregory M. says, please, Kanye, not this year. <laughs> Bradley R. says, the commies are coming. The commies are coming. Darren S. says, birdsong. <laughs> Max I. says, don't tase me, bro. Uh, John M. says, and then I introduce them to Harvey, and he's bigger and grander than anything they offer me. And when they leave, they leave impressed. The same people seldom come back, but that's envy, my dear. There's a little bit of envy in the best of us. Can't tell if that's a Donald Trump quote or a Joe Biden quote. <laughs> or a, a quote from Harvey, or I have no idea. And how would you scream that? <laughs> Nick A. says, Kristen Schaal is a horse. And that's finally, just me. <laughs> I actually I think that refers to something. Uh, Mike, finally, Michael F. says... Free Britney. <laughs> you are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. And now for something pretty complicated. If you have been listening to God's favorite, favorite radio show on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, on Saturday mornings during the global novel coronavirus pandemic, then what you've been hearing has been kind of a mess, so let me explain. Right now, at this very moment, it is 10.08 a.m., Thursday, July 9th. Now, if you are listening to the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell on WNUR, you've just stepped into a time machine, and it's suddenly the future. Saturday, July 18th, and it's a little bit after 9 a.m. Even more weird, while Jeff Dorchin still does the moment of truth during the fourth hour of every week's This Is Hell... You've been hearing Jeff during the first hour, as you will today, following Flint Taylor. That's because WNUR is currently 
fully automated and nobody is allowed inside the building where the studios are lo located, let alone in the on-air control room so we can program our show into the computer. So what we have to do is send audio files to the station and then programmers put our show in the queue to be played on Saturday mornings. However, we must have those files to them by the end of day on Wednesdays. That means that while Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays shows are played the following Saturday, you have to wait until the Saturday after that to hear the final hour of that week's show, which always includes a moment of truth. So you first hear the fourth hour of the show from two weeks ago, if you're listening on WNUR. Then you hear the first three hours of that week's shows. Told you it's pretty confusing. We hope to start playing all four hours of each week's shows in order every Saturday morning on WNUR soon. But in the meantime, bear with us. Excuse our dust as we work to get you the show each and every week and as soon as possible. Don't forget, you can always listen to This Is Hell streaming live at thisishell.com every Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast by around 2 p.m. daily, as well as our live Friday 10 a.m. Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. So thank you to everyone at WNUR who are doing their very best to get the station's listeners This Is Hell as soon as possible in these unprecedented times and we have been giving enough thanks lately before we switch to the daily format this year we used to thank people all the time for supporting the show and for sharing the show so as we are giving thanks on this thursday we want to thank the people who have shown their support for this is hell at our website this is hell.com when they click on support thanks for the tithing like commitment to this is hell by magnificent me and brett uh thanks for support also goes out to perita leah Adam, Bradley, Keith, Brian, Mark, Ronaldo. Hey, look, who bought a couple of uh, This Is Hell face masks? And thanks to Fred, Allison, Ralph, and Anna, who writes, I've been listening for a few years, but just now got it together to send some love, including subscribing to Patreon. Thanks for great interviews. Be well. Thank you, Anna. Without your support, the, this completely listener-supported show would not happen. This is hell coming up on this is hell police unions gotta go we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone you can leave your answer at our facebook page you can tweet it to us you can email it to us and we will be announcing our favorite and the winner of a this is hell face mask which are suddenly back in style in places like Texas, Florida, California. Who knew? Oh yeah, everybody. During the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff wants to plan for what happens after the future. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. Getting rid of police unions would not end police violence, but it would end an institution that exacerbates, if not encourages, that violence. Returning to This is Hell to talk police, policing, and their unions, attorney Flint Taylor wrote the Truth Out article, Police Unions Are Racist Power Brokers in Opposition to Movement for Black Lives. Welcome back to This is Hell, Flint. Great to be back, Chuck. Really good to be back with you. Really good to hear your voice. I'm glad that you're still in good health. You haven't had any issues with coronavirus, nothing like that for you or your wife? No, nothing uh, personally. My And my daughter's down in Miami, which is kind of Jeez. scary now. She's a, she's a, a federal defender down there. And, uh, 
it's, uh, you know, it's one of those crazy spots with an insane right-wing Trumpite uh, uh, governor, so uh, we're holding our breath. Well, thanks for not raising a prosecutor, Flint. <laughs> no way, no way. <laughs> so are you, uh, have you sent her a This Is Hell face mask yet, or should we do that? Well, we're working on that. Alex and I are working on that one. All right, cool. So uh, how much more difficult is it to help those who have accusations of police virus or police uh, violence during the virus? Considering COVID, the large amounts of infections at Cook County, how much more difficult is it to help those who need your and your law office's assistance when it comes to police violence? Well, it makes it more difficult. Our office is shut down, so we're working from home. Some of us have been out to demonstrations, and uh, some of the lawyers have been working on, on various lawsuits uh, uh, having arising out of some of the protests. And, of course, there's the Lawyers Guild has, has a mass defense uh, organization that's dealing with the people who got busted uh, over some of the demonstration nights where, where various uh, confrontations with the police happened. Uh, also... Uh, with, with regard to the jail, of course, uh, there's been uh, at least the death of at least seven uh, prisoners, uh, pretrial detainees uh, at, at Cook County Jail, and three staff members as well. And there's been lawsuits uh, brought by various public interest lawyers to to uh, attack the uh, the conditions at at county jail. So there's a remarkable amount of legal and and of course uh, we know how much uh, uh, support and 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 leadership is going on in the streets. Uh, so yes, it's more difficult, but I think it also has inspired the lawyers uh, on the left to 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 step up their game as well. So uh, your article at Truth Out is very uh, critical of police unions, but, and I don't, I hate to put you in this position, but if you were a police officer, how would you feel about the unions? Is it a good union for officers, or are the problems that you and other members of the public may have with the union problems that can adversely affect the officers as well? Well, uh, I wrote the article, and I, I, I could say I'm a bit of a, a student, not only a student, but someone who has uh, dealt with firsthand the, the unions, quote-unquote, for almost my entire career, which spans from Fred Hampton's assassination on to the present. Uh, so I, I wrote it primarily to expose uh, the history of, of the racism and the, and the power of that racism uh, that it has, not only within the police department, uh, not only with the, with the power structure, of the police department, but also with the uh, the mayor and and other uh, public officials. Um, the if I were a police officer, well, uh, I'd like to pass on that one, Chuck. But uh, I will I will uh, d- dive into your hypothetical for a quick moment there. Uh, this one thing, a uh, little bit I understand about uh, unions in general is that they represent uh, their people primarily around. Uh, issues of, uh, of contract uh, in terms of, of uh, wage, salary, working conditions, that kind of thing. What the power uh, that be in the unions, uh, in the police unions, they've gone way beyond that in terms of, of, of trying to control and protect officers in all circumstances. And their leadership is primarily, if not exclusively white, 
Uh, it's old school. It's it's uh, the, uh, the, the there's a former police superintendent uh, up in Minneapolis, and he became an expert witness for us. His name is Tony Boza, and he's a he, he's a uh, a very uh, forward-thinking individual, and. He characterized the union and the officers. He calls them Trumpers, tr- Trumper thumpers. And so the, not only did the unions, uh, are they right-wing and reactionary, but the, at this point in time, they are very strongly uh, in the camp of, of Trump. So they are a political force, uh, a white, reactionary, racist political force. And so they don't represent uh the the rank and file police officers certainly they wouldn't represent me uh if i were an officer they don't represent the black officers they don't have black representation in the power uh structure uh, if they did you wouldn't see them defending burge uh, paying for Burge's defense. Uh, you wouldn't see them uh, paying for Laquan McDonald's defense and supplying lawyers for that. Uh, you wouldn't see them uh, lounging around in Bobby Rush's office uh, uh, recently the, during the pandemic. Uh, and, and you wouldn't see uh, them saying that anyone, any officer who took a knee uh, would be drummed out of the lodge, because uh, of the lodge being the union, the FOP. So they represent uh, the uh, the most powerful yet reactionary and racist aspect of, po- of police departments and police officers. Do you think that police unions are less popular than we might be led to believe by the media? Because we have, and the way that you, that I consume the media at least, it seems that police are 100% behind the union and the union is 100% behind every officer. Do you think that that popularity is exaggerated? Much exaggerated. But we have to remember that uh, police uh, departments and police officers are in a paramilitary organization, and they are ruled by a culture of the code of silence. And that code of silence isn't just something where uh, you don't get invited over to to the uh, the sergeant's home or or uh, to, to uh, look down on it at, at some kind of uh, bar or something. Your 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 life, your livelihood. Uh, is at stake if you break the code of silence. Um, we have uh, examples throughout history. Uh, Frank Laverty, uh, Chicago's um, uh, Serpico, uh, who came forward and exposed to us the street files, the illegal files, that the uh, secret files that the police department and the detectives were keeping to, to, to seek to, to bury uh, uh, evidence that showed innocence. Uh, in cases, and they had this for decades. And uh, Laverty broke the code of silence to save a young man's life who was on trial for murder, who was innocent, and the evidence of innocence was was hidden in the police street files. What happened to Laverty? He didn't get a, a medal. He was a, a, an honored detective. They busted him down. They sent him to police headquarters, and his job was to watch recruits pee in a cup. Uh, that's that's what how he was uh, dealt with for breaking the code of silence, uh, and the black officers at Area Two, uh, where Burge uh, and his crew uh, ran rampant, rampant with with torture. Uh, the black officers, the few that were there, were intimidated into silence. 
uh, they knew what was going on, even though Burge kept them out of the rooms uh, where the torture was happening. They knew what was happening. They'd seen the torture devices and all of that. Uh, they would not, they were so afraid for their jobs and for their, actually for their lives and livelihoods and their families, that they waited uh, all, almost 15 years until they retired. And then finally I got statements from them about what they knew about the torture at Area 2, but they did not speak up until they were outside of the grip of the code of silence in the sense of being uh, active officers uh, in the department. So there's, uh, there, there were some very brave officers, uh, African-American officers over the years and decades with the African-American Police League, uh, who spoke out and took positions on the assassination of Fred Hampton, took a position on the torture at Area 2. But that, uh, that group was under uh, extreme pressure. And Ronald Robinson, one of the leaders, he got a similar treatment to, to Laverty after they brought law, uh, a lawsuit to, to, to integrate the police department, uh, affirmative action. Uh, he ended up patrolling an alley behind uh, 11th and State, which was the headquarters at that time. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the, on the police officers to go along and get along, and that certainly means that you go along and get along uh, with the union. Uh, there, but uh, you may have seen this, but there's a black officer who in the last couple of weeks spoke out against the union, and he did... Uh, and he talked about taking a knee, and he talked about Black Lives Matter. And he was interviewed by the Tribune, and then uh, he's been on TV recently. And he's re he wrote a letter resigning from the union, and that is a remarkably courageous act by him. And, of course, now he's into conflict with this clown that's the head of uh, the union uh, and uh, about... Um, about all of this, but it raises the issue that particularly African-American officers uh, and many of the rank and file who would like perhaps to, to police in a more humane way are under a tremendous amount of pressure to go along with the union and the decisions that the union leadership makes. You write that recently elected Fraternal Order of Police, that's the Chicago Police Union, President John Katanzara, Katanzara, uh, like Kroll, the Minneapolis police chief, or union chief, I should say, has a long record of disciplinary offenses and is presently serving a suspension for writing a false report. Was that false report just a small error? Or was there something bigger? And why would you elect somebody to be your union president who's filed a false report? Isn't that just bad publicity? Well, for, first of all, uh, the, from what I understand, the false report was that he he wrote up uh, Eddie Johnson, who was the superintendent uh, at that time, and he didn't write Eddie up for uh, falling asleep behind his wheel, uh, which got him fired ultimately by uh, by Mayor uh, Lightfoot. But he wrote him up for marching with uh, Father Flager uh, in a march against violence, and apparently he wrote him up for. Uh, uh, going on a public way. I guess they marched down and crossed uh, the Dan Ryan or something. And so this clown writes up, uh, writes up the superintendent, uh, obviously the political uh, under, underpinnings of that report was that he didn't like that, that uh, the superintendent was uh, joining arms with Father Flager uh, in a community uh, protest. Um, and yes, you track his history, 
believe this or not, Chuck, over the 50 years, each one of these presidents or whatever they call them uh, of the FOP here in Chicago is more to the right than the last one. And I thought I'd seen it all when the first or uh, the second vice president elected in the previous regime was this guy named Preeb. And Preeb was a, a, a close uh, buddy with uh, Burge. And we got some emails between Burge and him. And he was scheming to write a book for Burge before he died. And in these emails, uh, Burge was calling me and the and and my clients, the torture survivors, vermin and snakes and all this kind of stuff. And so he was a tremendously right-wing racist uh, vice president who became the spokesperson. He then ran for president. He was beaten out to the right by this guy who's in there now. Uh, and so if this leadership is reflective of the Chicago Police Department, then what, what Daryl Cannon, one of the torture survivors and a dear friend and client uh, of mine, has, has repeatedly said that, you know, the police department is nothing but the Klan with badges. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and as I think I've shared this with you before, uh, Officer Preeb was the beat officer here in this neighborhood when we uh, just moved into the offices over here. He was the beat officer for quite a while, so uh, I've heard many things about him as well. Uh, you, you know, one of the things that's going to get me, Flint, is it seems like all of a sudden uh, there's been this national epiphany that there is, if you want to call it systemic or institutional racism and racialized violence within the police force. A lot of people are saying this is only coming to light now because of body cams. But you you and your organization have been telling the media about this for 50 years. And you write that in 1994, the independent Molin Commission found that corruption within the New York Police Department is characterized by brutality, theft, abuse of authority, and active police criminality. Senior NYPD officials and prosecutors agreed with the commission's conclusion that their union protected corrupt police officers by helping them evade accountability. How long has everyone been fully informed that unions protect corrupt cops who engage in brutality, theft, abuse of authority, and active police criminality that can exacerbate police violence? Why all of a sudden is there this sense sense that people are like, I just found out about police violence when so many people, even the unions, even the NYPD have known for 28 years at the very least that police violence is rampant? Well, first of all, I guess uh, to answer part of your question, it's better late than never that people are learning, uh, the ones that don't already know and haven't, aren't involved as part of the problem rather than part of the solution, uh, that they're learning now uh, in this uh, remarkable moment uh, where uh, movements are, uh, are, are in the streets every day uh, leading the way. But if you go back and you say, how long has this been known, uh, to, to anyone who was really watching this and, and who had an open mind. It's been known ever since there was an FOP. The FOP here in Chicago started in 1963, and by 1969 they were taking the position that the police were heroes for uh, murdering Fred Hampton in his bed. If you look at New York and you mentioned 1994, well, in my article I went back to 1966, and the FOP in uh, the equivalent of the FOP in New York 
uh, is called the PBA, the Police Benevolent Association, if you can dig that. Um, and they, the, fir- the first thing I ran into was 1966 when they raised hell when uh, Mayor John Lindsay was, was coming under pressure for police brutality uh, in New York, and he was talking about a civilian review board, and they uh, used their power to lobby against it and get it defeated in a rent- referendum. And then they kind of uh, upped their their game uh, in the 70s and 80s when they uh, shut down the Brooklyn Bridge, had a mass dem- several mass demonstrations that turned to violence. They ran uh, in one, one point uh, under Mayor Beam, and they ran through the black and 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 uh, Latinx communities, uh, with their waving their weapons, banging on trash cans and 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 kicking things over, uh, and basically a police riot. Uh, so when you got to 1994 and and you got that report of the Mullen Commission, that was building on uh, 25 years already of police uh, violence and, and, and union, uh, uh, union insanity or, or racism uh, in, in New York. And that he, it, it, at that point, when the Mullen Commission came out, the mayor was black. It was uh, uh, Mayor Dinkins. And uh, they had a dem- one of the demonstrations they had, uh, they had 10,000 cops and uh, off-duty cops, the FOP organized it, I mean the PBA, excuse me. And um, they were, ca- you know, Dinkins was one of the targets because he was trying to impose a uh, civilian review board. And the, the racism and, you know, the depictions of the mayor, you know, with big lips and, you know, just a total racist uh, uh, kinds of uh, signs and, and pictures that these uh, cops were carrying was was totally uh, exposed the, the the PBA for for its uh, wanton racism uh, as well as the reactionary nature of what of their fighting against uh, the civilian review boards and accountability for the police department in New York. And again, you write that in 1975. I just want to repeat this: the PBA again. New York Police Department's uh, Police Benevolent Association, their union, ordered a rampage through the city's black and Puerto Rican communities with thousands of off-duty cops waving their guns, banging on trash cans, and blowing whistles for several nights while Mayor Abe Beam obtained a restraining order. How worried are you that police today, defunded or disbanded, will still be violent, that they will no longer, even though they're no longer police. How concerned are you about any kind of violent blowback from the police due to this uprising against police violence? Well, we're, we're, we're already seeing the blowback. I mean, uh, we've seen it across the country. Uh, we, you know, I, one thing that sticks in my mind, I, I mean, you see the, the militarization of the police and you see the tear gas and the bullets uh, that are being fired and protesters getting, you know, their eyes knocked out and, and uh, coming under uh, tear gas and, and pepper spray in, in, in a pandemic. Um, and you see the cops out there. Uh, if they don't have shields, they don't even bother to have masks. And then we, we see what happened up in Buffalo, knocking a 75-year-old peace activist on his butt uh, and almost killing him in the same way that 
uh, Daly's uh, nephew almost uh, did kill David Kochman, if you remember, by knocking him and he fell backwards and hit his head and and, and died from that. Um, So there is a blowback already uh, with the badges. Of course, the idea of of abolishing and defunding the police, community control of police, all those, that grouping of demands that goes beyond the reforms uh, that have proven and by and large to be unsuccessful in curbing police and and uh, their uh, their nature of, of of being the oppressive force in communities of color. Um, there that that continuation of a blowback. Uh, if the money is taken away from the police, uh, that that's something that to be to be worried about. But uh, that defunding has to go uh, to the basic issues of of uh, mental health care, uh, to uh, education, uh, to economic equality. Uh, I mean, you can't just defund the police. Uh, and you can't just abolish the police. You have to have mechanisms in place like community control of police, which, as the CPAC people here in Chicago say, if you have true community control of police, then that can lead, if the community moves in that direction, to ultimately uh, defunding and abolishing the police as we know them today. How would how difficult would it be to wrest that control away from the police union? It, it wouldn't it be almost impossible to do, or is it easier to somehow either reform or get rid of the police union than we might think? Well, uh, you know, it's in terms of of getting rid of the union. Um, as we sit here today, a lot of these things uh, yesterday seemed impossible. Today, they seem more likely because of the strength of the movements in the street. But we have to think of this as we always have as a long-term continuing struggle. It's not just a, If it's only just a moment, uh, then none of these uh, reforms uh, or, or revolutionary changes are going to happen. But if the movement continues to be strong enough and, 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 and its demands are uh, realistic enough to uh to, to to be implemented uh then then i think we we can uh change the fundamental nature of policing on the way to community control of police on the way to actually uh restorative justice and transformative justice and dealing with the broader issues of quote ju- the justice system mass incarceration uh, but we but we have to see it all uh, as many of your guests have in the past as as a whole I, I mean policing is just one enforcement aspect of the whole as many people like to call it the neo capitalist uh, excuse me neoliberal uh project uh which is has been uh, so powerfully uh in place in this country and around the world for so long now You've been doing this work uh, since the assassination of Fred Hampton by the Chicago Police Department, which happened on December 4th of 1969. A year earlier, in 1968, the Chicago Police Department showed how violent it could be during the police riots in Grant Park while the Democratic National Convention was taking place here in town. Are police any more or less abusive or violence today, or violent today than when you started your work? Well... Some of their uh, the repression that they impose is has a different uh, 
quantitative nature, quantitative nature. Uh, I mean, if probably if you go back and you look at how many uh, African-American and people of color were killed by the police 50, 45 years ago and how many are killed uh, today, you'd see that the, there, there are less. Uh, you, but the, the brutality itself, uh, the, the, the wrongful convictions, the, 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 the sentencing, the, the mass incarceration, that has increased. And so um, the police still serve the same function that they served uh, 50 years ago, and that is a, as an oppressive force, as, an, as, a, as a policing force, as a military force, as it were, in the communities uh, which the, uh, the government uh, and uh, both city and, and, and uh, federal uh, want to control. And they uh, they want to control rather than to give meaningful uh, employment to 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 give the kinds of uh, benefits and, and and rights that that we all uh, are entitled to. They they police instead. Uh, they they repress instead, and they incarcerate instead. People are uh, police are uh, clearly more militarized than they were when you began your career. Is that militariz- militarization? having any impact? Is there any evidence that militarization either leads to more police abuse or even lessens the chance of the police being abusive because of their show of overwhelming force? Well, you give them the toys and they'll play with them. And so they, they, you, they give a grenade launcher to, to a, uh, a county with uh, 1,200 uh, um, uh, citizens in it, and they'll figure out a way to use it. Uh, and and uh, so the more militarized they are, the more violent they are in in in, in the sense of of control. And and we saw that uh, at Standing Rock, uh, and we see it we've seen it in the streets in the last month or two. You you you, you wouldn't have if you had a computer or, or a TV, you saw it. You saw the militarization of the police, and the militarization of the police doesn't just go to the weapons that they're given. It goes to who uh, is enlisted as cops. Uh, you see this kind of exchange between the, the most violent aspects of the military and the most violent aspects of the police department. Going all the way back to Burge, where did Burge get his training in electric shocking people? In Vietnam, where he was on a POW camp where they were torturing uh, Vietnamese uh, civilians and 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 uh, guerrillas, um, and um, you look at Abu Ghraib, and you see that some of the people who were torturing in, in Abu Ghraib uh, were connected uh, to the correctional system here in this country, and you see that people coming back from Iraq and now coming back from Af- Afghanistan uh, become. Uh, guards. They become uh, cops. Uh, And so uh, not only uh, is the equipment militarized, but the people and the attitudes. I mean, Birch had an attitude that uh, of dehumanization that came straight from his view of the Vietnamese, and it didn't take him uh, long to uh, be able to apply that to, to, to the uh, African-American suspects that he was bringing in from the south side of Chicago. So 
that dehumanization and that training that they have in the military uh, goes along with the equipment that comes from the military to make the police even more uh, deadly uh, and uh, in the sense of uh, what they're capable of doing and what they will do in a certain circumstance than they were 50, 60 years ago. You write that when a department pursuant to a consent decree or community pressure implements de-escalation and peer intervention training, the union provides alternative warrior mentality training free of charge. You were saying that the union uh, didn't start up until 1963. Did the, are, are the police, within the way that they view policing right now, are they at war with the public? And prior to 1963, was the police at war with the public? Do we have this romantic vision of police that's based on pre-Union police that weren't as violent or aggressive as they are today? No, uh, that wouldn't. That would not uh, jibe with history. I mean, we have to understand where the police came from. The police came from the slave patrols. Now, the slave patrols certainly were as violent as anything we can imagine today. I mean, that was what they were about, racist violence, uh, racist violence against uh, uh, enslaved people who were were able to escape. Uh, And even those, and of course, that wasn't all that they dealt with. They they dealt with uh, repression and and, uh, genocidal uh, violence against enslaved people. And then you see where, where the police in the, in the cities uh, arose, and they arose as a force to suppress the labor movement, by and large. Uh, and, of course, we have Haymarket right here in Chicago as, as an example uh, of, of what police um, uh, were about uh, in this city before they turned their attention uh, in the early 1900s to during the first great migration uh, to the black communities. And we see what 1919, and we see what happened uh, on the South Side and, and, and the riots, the white riots in 1919 that were facilitated by, by white cops. Uh, and uh, so, no, they've always been violent because they've, their assignment uh, and their role has always been to suppress uh, those who are in conflict with uh, property and who the, uh, and with the ruling classes of of, of society. So, uh, the, the police department uh, becomes more modernized, becomes uh, in some ways more violent in terms of what they're capable of doing uh, weaponry wise. But uh, their their assignment, uh, their role, uh, can be traced from the inception of of policing. You write that in 2009, the Chicago FOP held a reunion during which it attempted to rewrite history about the wanton police brutality of the 1968 Democratic National Convention. In a false narrative that mirrors current police statements about today's protesters, the FOP declared that, quote, the time has come that the Chicago police be honored and recognized for their contributions to maintaining law and order and for taking a stand against anarchy. The only thing that stood between Marxist street thugs and public order was a thin blue line of of dedicated, tough Chicago police officers. How much are <laughs> cops policing Marxism? How commie-obsessed? Are, are, they, are they still fighting the Cold War? And, what does, and do you see that in their actions? Do their actions reflect that they're still fighting a Cold War? Well, you know, the, the labels might change, right? I mean, you can, you can substitute uh, 
Antifa for uh, for uh, commie Marxists or whatever uh, they that, that quote uh, referred to in terms of the quote outside agitators, right? The Abby Hoffmans of the world who came to Chicago uh, to demonstrate and to agitate, uh, and now they yeah they point that finger and Trump is jumping all over that as a as a desperate attempt to, to uh, revitalize his. His his chances in the in the election uh, by characterizing the entire uh, movement for Black Lives and 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 all of the uh, multi uh, racial support that it has in the streets uh, as left wing radical you know uh, agitators and violence and all of that uh, sure I mean you you have to I mean didn't Hitler did the same thing I mean you you have to uh, give at least some of your uh, supporters the, the the ideological basis for the hate and violence that you're spewing, uh, and uh, that's what the that's what they're doing now. They're trying to, and it also is a divide and conquer tactic as well. You know, to make people uh, who go out in the streets leery of doing so because they're afraid that something's going to happen. Uh, that will be characterized as violence, even though 99.9% of any violence that happens is violence against property. It's not violence against 75-year-old uh, peace activists or uh, uh, you know 27-year-old uh, woman in in Louisville or you know you name it. Uh, that's violence. Uh, that's racist violence. Uh, burning down a target uh, is not. This, uh, on the same level, of course, as as shooting someone dead, uh, sticking a knee on someone's neck, uh, or um, firing you know rubber uh, bullets at someone uh, so that a, a president can go across the street to hold a Bible upside down. Um, that that that's uh, uh, that's what we're dealing with here in terms of the propaganda that the unions put forward. And of course, uh, Kroll up in Minnesota, up in Minneapolis, you know, was an ardent Trump supporter who, who came out and spoke uh, with Trump at a rally. Uh, and, and the guy here in Chicago is a big Trump supporter uh, and, and has spoken out for Trump on, on, the, uh, on his website, uh, on his Facebook page. And Trump gave him a big uh, thumbs up when he got elected. Uh, so um, their, their ideology uh, is kind of a shared ideology with the uh, authoritarian or, or neo-fascist uh, attitudes that are coming from Washington. You mentioned Brianna Taylor. Uh, the Louisville Courier Gen- uh, Journal reported on Monday Brianna Taylor's shooting was the result of a Louisville Police Department operation to clear out a block in western Louisville that was part of a major gentrification makeover, according to attorneys representing the slain 26 year old's family. Lawyers for Taylor's family allege in court documents that in Jefferson Circuit Court Sunday that a police squad named Place based investigations had deliberately misled narcotics detectives to target a home on Elliott Avenue. 
Avenue, leading them to believe they were after some of the city's largest violent crime and drug rings. The complaint, which amends an earlier lawsuit filed by Taylor's mother against the three Louisville officers who fired their weapons into Taylor's home, claims Taylor was caught up in a case that was less about a drug house on Elliott Avenue and more about speeding up the city's multi-million dollar Vision Russell development plan. How often when you have been involved in cases of police violence or police abuse, how often do you find that abuse linked to concerns like the economy or development or gentrification of a neighborhood? Well, I think that's a very interesting uh, theory or, or that, that's being put forward there. Uh, and it really gives you great uh, food for thought because usually these, these raids that end up in the wrong house and someone gets beaten or someone gets shot uh, or their house gets completely turned upside down and then they go, whoops, uh, it was two doors down. Uh, oh, this was a family with, you know, five little kids who got terrorized within an, an ounce of their lives by, by you know, SWAT teams uh, looking for the drugs that weren't there uh, because it was another apartment building or it was another unit in the apartment. But this takes it to another level. I mean, that, you know, you can put into uh, kind of a, a gross negligence, uh, deliberate indifference, you know, they don't really care which house they go to. They're just, you know, jacked up to, to bust into houses. But this gives a political and uh, theory behind why they were going there, not just uh, because they made a mistake, because uh, the guy who uh, they thought was a drug dealer wasn't really there but that they they were consciously had a unit that was designed to to aid the gentrification that's going on there. It's a billion-dollar operation to gentrify the West Louisville uh, neighborhood that uh, abuts downtown to to clean it up. I mean, the the, the, uh, gloss they're putting on it is, you know, they're going to have low-income housing, they're going to have, you know, the kinds of things that a community needs, a poor community. But in reality, is this uh, nothing more than the gentrification that's going on now, you know, in, 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 in our city and in, in places uh, like uh, Ukrainian Village, for example? Uh, is it any different than uh, the urban renewal, as they called it back in the 60s, that when I was starting out, they were doing uh, down Halstead around Webster uh, and that the young lords were fighting against? So... Um, Yes, I think the police uh, are, become tools in, in whatever uh, schemes uh, and programs that, that, that the powers that be have and that the big real estate developers have and, you know, the capitalists in general have in terms of uh, taking over communities uh, and, and, and turning a profit out of, out of, out of those communities. We've been speaking with attorney Flint Taylor, who wrote the Truth Out article, Police Unions Are Racist Power Brokers in Opposition to Movement for Black Lives. He is a founding partner of the People's Law Office. You can find out more about the People's Law Office at peopleslawoffice.com. This is Flint's millionth appearance on our show, and you can hear 10 of those interviews right now by going to thisishell.com, because our archives only go back to 2015, but we are working on getting them all online 
One final question for you, Flint. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And no, I will not be asking you about Stacey Abrams or Elizabeth Warren. I promise. (laughs) So is support for police, support for white supremacy, and is that the political divide in the United States? Support of the police or not? Support for white supremacy or not? Is that the political divide that is being revealed to us today? Well, it certainly is a, a, a preeminent uh, uh, divide that we have here. Um, white supremacy in all its forms is so powerful uh, in this country and, goes, and, and is such uh, a part and parcel of the history of this country, the hidden history. We go back to uh, the, the genocide against indigenous people. Uh, that history is hidden from us. And we're, st- and we're starting to see... Uh, even people who, who, who have studied, uh, and we all like to think that we understand uh, white supremacy and racism from our work and our studies over the years, but even our eyes are being opened to the, the, the how ingrained in, in our history and, and, and in our symbols uh, white supremacy is. I mean, as uh, statute after statute gets toppled, uh, and my, my personal favorite w- it was when uh, Christopher Columbus uh, was dumped into the uh, harbor in, uh, in Baltimore, uh, straight out, boom, into the water. <laughs> but, but when you think about all the terminology and, and all of the things that you almost have to rethink uh, everything that, that, that you say, because so much of it, I mean, whether it's... Uh, something obvious like the name of the, the Washington uh, football team or, or uh, you know, much less obvious in terms of the, what the white supremacy uh, symbols are and, and how they're enforced. Of course, the police are the, uh, are the front lines enforcing white supremacy. Uh, and now we're seeing that in a way that people in general can, can see it and, and ha- have to deal with it or they are being uh, more than asked to deal with what has been the, 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 the hidden secret uh, of, of U.S. history and, and, and as it applies not only to the past but to the present. Flint, always great hearing your voice. I'm looking forward to this stupid pandemic being over so we can have beers again. I will talk to you soon. Looking forward to having you back on the show in the very near future. Thanks, Chuck. It's great talking with you. And uh, let me throw a plug in for my book, The Dark Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. I think it has some relevance in terms of uh, trying to understand uh, racism and white supremacy, uh, particularly in the city. And you can hear our interview with Flint about that book from March of last year by going to thisishell.com. All right. Take care, Flint. I'll talk to you soon. All right, Chuck. Take care now. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah, via email, Elsie uh, says, I'm giving them the Dean scream. Ah, I don't actually don't remember how that sounded anymore. No, I don't either. Uh, Neil C says, "Can I quarantine with you? What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? The Dems have coronation virus. Says you're not following anyone by taking your clothes. You're not fooling anyone by taking your clothes off when you go to bed. 
All right. Rock Taster says it rubs the lotion on its skin or else <sighs> it gets the hose again. Oh, my God. Ursula W., and I'm not happy to be reading this one, says, Hey, I just met you, and this is crazy, but here's my number. So call me, maybe. It's oh, hard to look right at God. you, baby, but here's my number. Call me, maybe. Do not quote Ursula. Canadian <laughs> songwriters on this song. Uh, Brian DP says, Alex, what's new about you? <laughs> Nocturnal E says, F the police. I know it's not clever, but it's true. Timecock, uh, one-upping Ursula on the things <laughs> I do not want to be reading on the show, says, somebody once told me the world is going to roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. And on and on with that Smash Mouth song. Wow. Damn it, Tom Cuck. Damn it, Time Cuck. Wow. Uh, Sunny F says, yes, I am an Antifa MFer. So what? Matt R. Paul says, oh, thanks. It's the name of my favorite podcast. <laughs> what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? Tim says, at least you have the courtesy to point your phone directly at me instead of flying a recon plane overhead. Uh, Chad C. says, it puts the lime in the coconut or it gets the hose again. God. Captain uh, VT says the frogs are going to turn you gay. And then finally, <laughs> the least likely, the one I least want to read on the entire thing, Greg D says, Chuck is a freak in the sack. <laughs> uh, this is the last question from a, hell I'm ever going to post. supposed to be a secret there. Uh, by the way, uh, I know somebody who toured with Smash Mouth. They were the opening band for what? Smash Mouth. And uh, he, they were an up-and-coming band, and they were talking to the lead singer for Smash Mouth, and they were like, dude, how can you play that song, Rockstar, every night? And he goes, it's the greatest thing in the world. I, I could do this for the rest of my life. If I just played that one album over and over and over again, I'm completely happy. He was totally satisfied with being a one-hit wonder and touring the rest of his life. Isn't that just weird? I, don't I want to hit. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Anyway. Also, the rest of your answers to this week's question, Mel, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, you can still leave your answers at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us. The winner gets a This Is Hell face mask, which you can find right now at thisishell.com by clicking on support on Patreon tomorrow, live at patreon.com slash thisishell at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. And podcast shortly after, we are playing an interview from... 16 years ago, July 17th, 2004, with journalist Norman Kelly, author of The Head Negro in Charge Syndrome, The Dead End of Black Politics. In his book, Norman writes, The HNIC, Head Negro in Charge Syndrome, has seen the rise of symbolic leaders Jesse Jackson, Louis Farrakhan, Sharpton, L. Sharpton, and now Russell Simmons, who may be charismatic but are politically unaccountable to the very people they claim to represent, namely African Americans. The transformation has been underway since the 1970s, but most... African-Americans have yet to confront it, which all of that turns out to be pretty prescient as four years later, Barack Obama becomes the first black president and many in the BLM movement felt Obama was politically unaccountable to to them during his eight years in office. Also on Patreon tomorrow, we're going back up north to small town America where the pandemic was a hoax ruining business, where you can stay safe with faith and not with fear and those stupid pesky face masks. This time we're checking in on how they're reacting to the police murder of George Floyd when the uprising started. Residents believe the problem with the police was just a few bad apples. And besides, there's no need for these protests to go off everywhere. The problem's only in Minneapolis. Since then, the local paper had a confusing poll to gauge support of President Trump's threat to do whatever it takes to clear the protests. Even more confusing letters 
reacting to the poll came up and a lot of silence. But you can only hear our 2004 interview with Norman Kelly on the head Negro in charge syndrome and my monologue on how small town America is reacting to the police murder of George Floyd by subscribing to completely listener supported. This is hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. You can also show your support for this is hell by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you can see all of our merch. Uh, anything else I want to mention here? No. I know you have Jeffy on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The future stinks. What's next? Welcome to the moment of truth. The thirst that is the drink. There are so many ways to die. They invent new ones every day. At the time of this writing, they just introduced the Black Death in China. I know the Black Death isn't new. It's one of the true golden oldies. But it's never been branded the Chinese Black Death before. Except maybe once before. You can be killed by police during a traffic stop. A fate a great deal more likely if you're black. But some would argue that's just lynching in the form of abuse of law enforcement power. You can die by eating radioactive soup, though you are more likely to do so if you're involved in politics in a former Soviet state. But assassination of political opponents by entrenched governments isn't new. You can die from drought and famine or flooding or fire, none of which is new, but it seems new if it's brought on by global warming. You can die from poverty, but it's new to die from poverty caused by the negligence of the federal government's response to the epidemic of COVID-19. Again, it's really the rebranding that makes it new. So, okay, maybe there isn't a new way to die invented every day, but the old ones are coming to get us in new configurations, and who knows in what novel disguise morbidity greeted this day's dawn. What's really important is to think of the future. Actually, no. The future looks like now, only worse. Let's set our sights beyond the future. What do you want to be when you die? I know it seems unimportant now, but believe it or not, you have many more choices available than you might have realized. A lot of consumers assume their choices are limited. Far from it. People's imaginations are stunted by the media, who leave you thinking you can either be a vampire or a zombie or just regular dead, which for too many Americans means they go to heaven. They picture themselves in Ku Klux Klan robes without the hoods, holding a lyre, with a halo floating above their heads. I don't know what's dumber. The limited undead choice between zombie and vampire, or the idea that you'll go live in the clouds like an angel in a New Yorker cartoon. First of all, dumbbells, vampires and zombies are rare, in case you hadn't noticed. This is for the same reason you can't just go out and hitch a ride on a sea turtle anytime you feel like it. They, they just don't last past their first day of existence. Most vampires turn to dust pretty quickly, because unlike in the movies, they don't get mentored properly and, and end up exposed to sunlight before they know they should avoid it. And zombies, they get their heads blown off because... That's just how people deal with them. You can't really blame them. Or their heads get damaged by falling objects. Or when the zombie itself falls and smashes its own head because zombies aren't coordinated. Here you could also blame lack of mentorship, I suppose, but 
Zombie mentors don't really exist. Zombies are just meat robots animated by some otherworldly force of evil. There's some disagreement about this, but if anyone thinks some reform of the zombie education system would somehow improve things, your heart might be in the right place. But who really wants a bunch of pedantic zombies walking around correcting everyone's grammar before taking a bite out of your shoulder? You're not going to find a lot of public support. Second of all, dumbbells, you have to think about your souls. Vampires and zombies don't have souls. Really, if you become them, they're not even you. They're just corrupt, evil things with the devil inside them. Considering that, maybe a zombie isn't a bad way to go, because it's not really you. Your soul flies out and goes elsewhere. The same with a vampire. I'm just guessing. I'm making an informed assumption. I think that's legitimate. But it doesn't matter. The vampire-zombie binary is a false choice. Think outside the bun. You could be a mummy or a Frankenstein. Those are more Halloween costumes than actual beings, but they do exist. But to be a mummy when you're dead, you need to have been an ancient Egyptian when you're alive. It's not for you. If you have to ask, it's not for you. And the Frankenstein-style monster, that, that's more than likely out of reach as well. The complex things you need to have been while alive and the unlikely circumstances, so much is out of your control. It would be a billion to one shot. I only mention them for the sake of completeness. Ghosts are where the real opportunities are. There are so many positions for every taste. Banshees for you screamers or a dibbick. For the Jewish style, a Jacob Marley with the chains, if you're an Anglophile and like heavy iron jewelry. For those who really want reparations with a vengeance, you could be a Candyman. Uh, La Llorona, for those who want that Latinx flavor. Poltergeist, if you're okay with heavy lifting. In Japan, you could be a Weeping Woman, a Laughing Woman, a Snow Woman, a No Face, a Ceiling Licker. You could be a Grudge Kid or a trapped in a well and crawls out of the TV girl. It's a wide open field. Or you could just haunt. You could haunt a house, a hospital, a car, a dog, anything attached in some way to how you die. You just hang around somewhere and reenact the circumstances of your death. Sounds like a very repetitive way of occupying the afterlife, though. You might as well stay alive rather than that option. If you're looking for something more interesting, Try reincarnation, also known as metempsychosis or spirit transmigration. Yoga and Indian food are trendy right now, so expect this option to really catch on. Although it isn't only Hindus who believe in it, Buddhists do too. There are strains of Judaism that believe in it. I'm sure there are some esoteric Christians who hold the idea as well. I don't know, maybe Gnostics or Nestorians or Shakers, who knows. In any event, it's the choice that offers the biggest surprise ending. It's unclear who decides what your new incarnation will be. From stories I've read, there's an impersonal but somehow poetic mechanism. In a simpler world, there'd be a bureaucrat, kind of a Santa Claus, in that they'd have a list of sins or quirks, and that functionary would choose your new incarnation based on the major themes of your life of sin. But no such individual is ever mentioned in any of the literature. There's no spirit dispatcher. There just seems to be a sort of unseen passageway between the old life and the new, with the result nevertheless being kind of ironic. An egotistical opera singer, for instance, might come back as a croaking crow, or even worse, a creature without a voice at all. It's almost as if this force, or 
automatic regulator, if you will, has the same aesthetic as Rod Serling. Some of you will live on in your offspring. That might be the worst idea yet. What's good about you? You need to leave little copies of you, and not even accurate copies, which is for the best, I'm sure. They just drop out of your bodies. It's weird. You know why they call multiple offspring a litter? Think about it. What is it about persisting into the future that propels you to procreate? I know it's not necessarily rational. (sighs) Jesus, how could it be? But the reason I bring any of this up at all is that I have a suggestion. I want to advocate for a course of action or inaction. When this COVID-19 quarantine began, before we started getting all cocky and loose about traveling outside our homes, especially some of us, I'm not naming names, but they are people of very low quality. Early on, at least here in LA, when people started out locking down and isolating really well, really admirably, wild animals started appearing where they normally aren't seen. The Venice Canal dolphins were a fake story, but deer, owls, mountain lions, condors, and the air was cleaner. People were driving way less in March and April. Here in L.A., you could actually get somewhere in a reasonable amount of time. Somehow we're back to normal traffic. Where does everybody think they're going? And the asinine volume of fireworks over the last two weeks has returned us to the worst air quality since... They began fighting smog. Nice nice work. Real real nice with the smoke and the firecracker dreck all over the streets. We don't deserve nice things. That's why we don't have them, I guess. All right, back to what I was going to suggest. First, find a relaxing spot to lie down on your back. In yoga, which is very trendy as our reincarnation in Indian food, this is called Shavasana, also known as corpse pose but we'll get to that. Just think of it as lying face up, flat on your back. Relax. Breathe. Breathe in. Breathe out. Let your muscles go limp. Let the tensions of the day evaporate out of your body. Relax. Let go. Let it all go. Let your furniture collapse. Gradually. Let the strong and weak nuclear forces loosen their grip. Let the roof cave in. Let the walls fall down and erode in the gentle breeze. Let the power grid go down. Let it go. Just let it go. Let the energy dissipate into the atmosphere. Let the vehicles on the roadways coast to a stop, rust and dissolve. Let the airplanes fall out of the sky smash on the ground, and be covered over with strata upon strata of dust. Let all the buildings sag under their own weight, fall as if to their knees, and collapse forward in a face plant. Let it all go. It's been your stress and worry and irrational exuberance that have kept it all operating, but now you're free. Just let the tension leave. Let whatever is bonding your molecules together give up their agonized grip. Let your flesh fall like jelly off your bones, and your bones crumble to powder. Let it crumble, in the words of Orestes in the Flies by Jean-Paul Sartre. Isn't that better? Without any effort on your part, without striving, without ambition, the world goes on without you. The whales ride the ocean's currents, the birds fly at their will, the plants grow using the very chemicals that once 
called themselves by your name. The world turns on its axis. It revolves around the sun. The sun converts hydrogen into energy, and you don't have to lift a finger, which is perfect because you don't have any fingers. Life drinks in the energy of earth, water, and sun. Life blossoms and creates new forms, and maybe even if we allow it, it will one day evolve an intelligent species, one that can truly appreciate the variety of cosmic creations. Let's just wait and see. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. Santa was such a bureaucrat. What a jerk. He oh, he's a bureaucrat. He's got that list of naughty and nice and all he's, that his, BS. His whole surveillance system is just really oppressive. All right, Jeffy. Absolutely. Until next uh, week. Chuck, I, I yeah, have a yeah, question for yeah, you. Yes, yes. How are you? How am I? <laughs> yeah, just how. That's the only, yes, that's the only question I have. <laughs> I just want you to be well. I'm not worried about your health. I'm not, I'm actually not putting any pressure on you at all. Just how are you? I got tennis elbow. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Stay off that elbow. <laughs> All right. Till next week. All right. You too. Stay beautiful. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. This week's question mail is, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? The person with our favorite answer gets a this is hell medical face mask. Alex, do we have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Yeah, we got one last one. Uh, that was via Stephen S. who says, you ain't really house. It's via a uh, release from Farley Jackmaster Funk. You ain't really house. My answer to this week's question from hell, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? With my vision? I'd probably, probably be yelling, is that a phone? The answers I liked most were Darren saying birdsong, Jacob, an intimidating but nonsensical series of screams, which will hopefully trigger a flight response from the voyeur so I can continue looting in relative peace. Dan saying, why won't you love me anymore? Leslie saying 1968 called, it wants its civil unrest back. Chris saying, your hair smells nice. Alex, do you have any nominees for your favorite answer uh, to this week's question? You moment? had the best one this week, but uh, <laughs> I'm partial to Darren Ash's uh, birdsong. I need to go with birdsong, too. I thought that was, that was my favorite as well. So, Darren, you are the winner of this week's question, Mel. You are going to get a This Is Hell face mask. All you have to do is just send us your mailing address via Facebook, and we'll get that into the mail as soon as possible. Uh, as it's apparently giving thanks Thursday, we want to also thank all the people who have been sharing. This is hell over the last few weeks. Real quick, Gorilla Gramophonics, Social Ecology Project, Penn, Hyung, Nick, Julie, Jody, Jeff, Ihering, Axel, Boone, Kareem, Brian P., Brian H., Pete, Adam, and the list goes on and on. Thanks to everybody who shares This Is Hell. Alex, who's on the show next week? Uh, halfway booked. So I uh, don't know about Monday and Wednesday, but on Tuesday, we are really excited to have Marquise Bay back on. Sweet. Marquise is the author of the new book from AK Press, Anarcho Blackness Towards, or Notes Towards a Black Anarchism. And he wrote uh, Demgoon Rules, which we discussed last week here. Uh, that involved uh, Chuck, rap or Chuck reciting Lil Wayne uh, lyrics, which was maybe the low light of 2019. I, Go really, back and, I a, love reading uh, raps in a very broadcasterly way. I think it's very funny. And then on Thursday, uh, Greg Palast will be on to talk about his book, How Trump Stole 2020. 
the hunt for America's vanished voters. This week's Hangover Cure is avocado eggs. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including Kai Heron and Jody Dean, who co-wrote the E-Flux article, Revolution or, Ru- or Ruin, geographer Eugene McCann, who wrote the Society and Space article, Spaces of Publicness and the World after the coronavirus crisis. Political anthropologist Craig Hetherington, author of The Government of Beans, Regulating Life in the Age of Monocrops. And finally, thanks to today's guest, Attorney Flint Taylor, who wrote the Truth Out article, Police Unions are Racist Power Brokers in Opposition to Movement for Black Lives. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we head back up north to find out what's happening in small-town America in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd. And we will be playing a 2004 interview with Norman Kelly about his book, The Head Negro in Charge Syndrome, The Dead End of Black Politics. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.